Coming up on Security Management Highlights. Most often, military veterans do have a, a larger understanding of safety and security than the average uh, citizen. We'll speak with a former captain from the Swedish Armed Forces about why former military personnel make effective employees in the security industry. With technology growing at a rapid pace, are law enforcement equipped to keep up with the tools that will help them fight the most persistent threats? Really, the overarching need seemed to be not so much more technology, but policies and guidance to use it. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo tells us more about a report from the RAND Corporation on predictive policing and what its findings say about the future of law enforcement. Then, companies operating abroad in today's environment face greater threats and challenges, I think, than they have at any time since the end of, really, the Second World War. We'll speak with Dan Richards, CEO and founder of Global Rescue, on best practices for businesses when sending employees abroad and operating on a global level. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's podcast. Security managers looking for hardworking employees who thrive in a team environment may not need look further than a military veteran. Andreas Popius, a course manager with the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, tells us more about his October feature story titled, From Military Heroes to Security Assets. Hi, Andreas. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. So why do ex-military personnel make such effective workers in the security field? I would say basically because most often military veterans or both soldiers, officers, or uncommissioned officers do have a, a larger understanding of safety and security than, let's say, the average uh, citizen. One, one reason could be, of course, the, uh, the training, depending, of course, on, on where you work in what nation. But usually the military training as itself it aims to be uh, safe even during training, so to say. So it means that you have a safety perspective from the first day you enter the military because pretty obviously that, that the military don't want to hurt their own people, so they want to make the training as safe as possible, which means that you have to look up for, for also safety instructions. And, and if you're training yourself as a non-commissioned or commissioned officer, you have to plan your exercise in a safe manner. And Andreas, how do recruiting and the interview play into the hiring process for managers when considering a veteran of the military? First of all, for every recruitment process, I would say, you have to really identify what kind of profession you need. And when you've done that, also you have to know the uh, the candidate's skills, ambition, and, and personality. And for military veterans, it could be a bit hard for a even most experienced recruiter to really understand what kind of benefits the candidate could have from being in the military to make sure that you as a recruiter really understand the candidate's resume. And here I would say both some pre-studies could, could be in order, but also to make sure that during the interview really dug deep into what the, the candidate has been doing in the military to really trying to translate somewhat the military experience and the knowledge and training into civilian language, so to say. Because I've noticed myself and also former colleagues of me who, who had pretty large problems or having issues converting, so to say, their, their military resume to a civilian, even though they have, in many cases, a pretty large understanding of what they're actually about to to work with or, or their new profession of civilians, so to say, but they haven't been able really to transform it or convert it into a civilian term, which means that both the hiring agency or organization as well as the candidate could lose both opportunities. The longer you have stayed in the military, the more experience you have from the military, which could be both good and bad. Of course, it could mean that you are actually stuck in the system, but it could also mean that you have quite some experience to use 
at another employer. But also when, when you're younger, you have, of course, perhaps easier to, to adapt to a new environment. Now, you also state in your article that veterans make good team players. So while this may seem obvious, can you delve a little bit more into the reasons why and how that makes a more effective employee? This relates to being a part of a system or an organization. But as a soldier or, or NCO or, or commissioned officer, you, you are a part of a system. The things that, that you do as a person affect the, uh, the system in one way or another. And I would say that military personnel have most often, especially officers, have a larger understanding of being a part of a system and actually working for the, the good of the system or organization. Perhaps uh, some, some soldiers are, are better for, for positions where you need people who stay in their boxes and, and some others are better for positions where you want people to think outside the box. But, but the large thing is to understand that your work at hand benefits the system or the organization. Finally, you point out that former military personnel may be affected by their past experiences in war zones and other issues that hiring managers might need to be sensitive to. Can you expound on that a little bit? I mean, it could be, of course, illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder or or depression or or things like that. And if you have a personnel system or or, uh, human resource organization, of course, they could help you with the more practical managing or handling of of, all these issues. But most of it, I mean, it, it really starts off with people knowing or noticing someone being ill. But it also, in, in a good way, I would say, affects people in being a bit calmer. I mean, not getting stressed or too anxious about things that may be a problem, but if they don't. One example could, could be that if, if you have a problem in, in an organization that could definitely affect the organization negatively, but no one will probably die. Then I noticed that ex-vets are more calm in ha- handling that situation than people who haven't really faced more uh, danger or more, uh, more serious problems. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Andreas. Thank you as well, Holly. With budget constraints and technology evolving at a rapid pace, it may be difficult for U.S. law enforcement agencies to keep up with critical elements of predictive policing. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo explains. So, Mark, tell us more about the RAND study on predictive policing that you covered. Who commissioned the study, and what is the basis of it? Sure, Holly. The National Institute of Justice, which serves as the national focal point on criminal justice technology, they tasked the RAND Corporation to determine the highest priority IT needs for U.S. law enforcement agencies. The idea was that there's roughly 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the U.S., and they have varying budget constraints. So the report was commissioned to determine, you know, what are their needs? What do they need more of, need less of, that type of thing. I spoke with John Hollywood. He's a senior operations researcher at the RAND Corporation. He was the lead author of this study, and he's also director of the Information and Geospatial Technology Center of the National Law Enforcement and Corrections Technology Center, which provides strategic planning and things like that for NIJ. Would he basically said was that when they undertook the study, they thought that in terms of what law enforcement agencies need, they would basically need more technology, you know, different types of technologies, things that they weren't getting now. But he said really the overarching need seemed to be not so much more technology because there's a lot out there now, but policies and guidance to use it because you've got, especially in the last 10 years or so, all these new widgets, all these new software 
software, hardware, IT tools, and it's still a little bit unclear how they should be used, what guidelines should they be used under. So there's a big need for policy, including things like uh, evaluation of new tools, testing, things like that. How did they organize the report? So they have three findings that came out first, and three broad needs were found. One is a need to improve the enforcement community's knowledge of technology and practices. The second need was to improve the sharing and use of relevant information. And the third was a need to conduct what they call RDT&E, research, development, testing, and evaluation of different facets of the IT. Now, if you break that down further, there were seven areas where more research and development were needed. And some of those seven areas, a lot of RTD and E were needed. For instance, social media. That played out in several ways. One of the findings there was that law enforcement could use social media to better communicate with the public, like sending out information bulletins over social media channels, broadcasting areas that should be avoided in town because of incidents. Also, they found there could be better use of social media for what they call reverse feeds to solicit tips and intelligence from the community. And you mentioned in the article that the use of social media discussed in the RAND report correlates with the recent report from ASIS International. Can you tell us more about that? Definitely. The ASIS study was conducted by the ASIS International Crisis Management and Business Continuity Council. The study's actually reported on in depth in the September 2015 issue of uh, Security Management. The ASIS study basically found that 55% of police departments surveyed are are actively using social media, which is good, but there are three main barriers to better use. There's a lack of personnel or a lack of time or both to work on social media. There's a lack of policies and guidelines, which is very consistent with what the RAND study was saying about a need for more policies and guidelines. And there's also concerns about the trustworthiness of collected data because it's often not scientific samples, but just what they get from Twitter, posts from Facebook, things like that. So kind of a hot topic touched on in the RAND report is the use of wearable body cameras by law enforcement. We're seeing that in the news more and more. You know, law enforcement agencies are adopting this, and there's a lot of involvement with lawmakers and creating policies around that. But what did the RAND report say as far as predictive policing and body cameras? Several findings came out of the report. One was that in terms of the needs in this area, there's a need for more comprehensive general use policies on things like when to record, when not to record, who should get access to footage, and under what circumstances should access be granted. There's problems because, like on the question of access, for instance, there's a lot of variance in laws from state to state. And this also came out actually in the ASIS seminar and exhibits that just passed. The use of body cameras brings in a whole nother layer of bureaucracy. For example, people, members of the community, can file freedom of information requests to get body camera footage. But if it's filed, it's unclear under what circumstances would police be obligated to give up the footage and honor the request. And then probably police would have to write letters or contact people who are in the footage and saying, we have an FOI request. You're in the footage. Is it okay if we release this? You know, so there's a lot of different factors to describe now. Another finding in the RAND report is that what's happening now is 
in incidents that police are involved in, there's sometimes video from multiple perspectives. In some, the officer may be wearing a body camera. You may have bystanders who are filming it with their cell phones. And you're even getting some instances now of either perpetrators or people associated with the perpetrators who are kind of trying to do staged footage, like pretending a policeman is beating someone and saying like, stop beating my brother and making sounds and things like that. So you've got now all this video that officers kind of have to sort out and you know there could be legal ramifications for this if it's used in court so there are just a ton of issues that are pretty much unresolved yes definitely and on top of body cameras which is kind of physical technology there's also the cybersecurity concern as far as uh, the RAND report goes and what, what did it say about that the report found a need for research and development involving the cybersecurity issues that are involved with a new IT tool. So things like data hacking, privacy concern, more policies are needed, more guidance is needed. Basically, police need clearer policies on all this. As Hollywood told me, these are law enforcement experts, but they're not experts in cybersecurity. So a lot of guidance is needed in that area. Now, interestingly, there was another report you mentioned in your piece, Visions of Law Enforcement Technology in the period 2024 to 2034. What is that about? Is it really a a report from the future? In a word, yes. It's an interesting report which tries to envision what the future of law enforcement will look like. And one of the main findings was that really there's just going to be more and more use of technology. There's going to be, for instance, more use of cloud computing. There's going to be more analytic tools, probably more surveillance tools, probably more cameras, more use of GPS, global positioning system, to monitor officer location. You also may have increased use of military-style equipment, like uh, high-performance wearable cameras that, beyond what's used now with current body cameras, the high-performance cameras will afford greater range of vision, more durability, things like that. The problem with all this, or the potential problem, is that with more and more IT, with potentially more and more military-style equipment being used, will law enforcement agencies be able to retain public support? Or will there be a backlash and members of the community thinking, this is too much, it's too intrusive, police have too much of my data, their forces are now too militarized, and the lack of community support could be a real problem for law enforcement in the future. Basically, what that report is advocating for is that to retain community support, law enforcement should follow three principles, a good amount of information sharing, good amount of education and training, not only for people who use the tools, but for community members, and also public, private, and other types of partnerships where members of the community can participate and really kind of be more part of law enforcement rather than just people that law enforcement acts upon. Well, thank you so much for explaining more about your article, Mark. Thanks, Holly. From natural disasters to geopolitical instability, companies need to ensure their employees are safe when conducting business or traveling abroad. Dan Richards, CEO and founder of travel risk management company Global Rescue, explains what he sees as the biggest threats to companies in today's global environment. Companies operating abroad in today's 
today's environment face greater threats and challenges, I think, than they have at any time since the end of, really, the Second World War. We have a geopolitical climate that's as unstable as it's ever been in the Middle East. Africa is also, you know, characterized by security instability in many countries. And in Asia, while many countries in Asia are stable, there is certainly the rising challenges that are associated with, you know, geopolitical friction between the United States and China and some other major countries over there. So this creates a, a situation where companies have greater challenges than, than ever before. Those challenges break down into three categories, really. The first is knowing what their actual threat environment, as it applies specifically to their footprint, looks like. What I mean by that is if they've got office locations or supply chains that extend into certain regions, understanding exactly what the profile is of those regions. Number two is understanding where their people are, because with a highly uh, mobile workforce, you know, in today's world, it's very, very difficult to keep track of where travelers are. And then trying to correlate what the threats are with that footprint is really important. The second is communication, and it's something that's taken for granted, I think, in today's constantly connected world, that the people that you want to talk to are always going to be available. And the reality, that's not the case when it comes to these greater emergencies. Communication systems are often the first to go. Internet gets knocked out or goes down. Cell phone service and cell phone towers are frequently targets when, uh, when major events occur. So companies really need robust communication plans. And that today is not necessarily something that is uh, always on the top of the priority list. And the third is the ability to actually respond. And what global enterprises find themselves struggling with is, in the height of an emergency, having enough bandwidth, and that bandwidth having the critical expertise, both from a medical and security standpoint, to be able to scale up rapidly and respond effectively so that they can meet whatever the need and, and challenge might happen to be at the time. Because what you often find is personnel are so deeply involved in just trying to provide situational awareness and communicating internally that they have no real ability to deploy or really put the boots on the ground at the site of crisis. And that's where Global Rescue comes in on behalf of our clients. How do you go about consulting with your clients and ensuring that they're maintaining best practices when it comes to staying safe while traveling or conducting business abroad? So the first place to start for preparedness is to have a plan. And Global Rescue is instrumental with clients in helping them develop what we call EAPs, which are emergency action plans, to be able to deal with uh, crises when they occur. The first thing that every organization should have is the ability to know what that footprint is uh, that I mentioned previously. And the only way to do that is by having a, a comprehensive risk management tool that you can rely on. And at Global Rescue, we've developed a service that we call our GRID intelligence service. And what it does is it keeps track of an enterprise's travelers, their assets, their supply chains, and allows them to see in real time where everything is in a geospatial environment and correlate what that footprint is with what's happening in the world so that you can be concerned as a travel risk manager or a member of the security team or a crisis manager with those personnel and assets that might be in regions where there is a developing threat environment. And so understanding what your footprint is and having a tool that you can use to quickly assess what the potential risks are is incredibly important because the best crisis is the crisis that doesn't happen because you're able to avoid that crisis.
The second thing that we do is help our clients train their personnel to effectively respond. And while each crisis is different, there are always similarities that exist. And so over the last decade, we've developed a, a suite of tools and training services that our clients have used very, very effectively in environments like the Arab Spring or in the aftermath of the Japanese and Haitian earthquakes or during the Mumbai terrorist attacks to help keep their people safe, get them out of harm's way, and to communicate effectively within the organization. And then the third is to retain that ability to deploy when deployment resources are scarce. And so Global Rescue does deploy medical and security personnel to the site of crisis anywhere in the world. We have some of the most highly trained paramedics physicians and on the security side, former military, many special operations veterans who can deploy to these locations on behalf of our clients to make sure that, that those boots on the ground are instrumental in getting them out of harm's way. You mentioned the Arab Spring. Can you tell us a little bit more about that instance and how you helped your clients deal with that harrowing situation back in 2010? Yeah, so we had a number of clients who were impacted by the Arab Spring events. And as you'll recall, in 2010, the environment in Egypt went from relatively peaceful protesting to, uh, on a Friday afternoon, violent confrontation in Tahrir Square. And so things changed very, very quickly, and the security situation on the ground changed very quickly. Those organizations that were clients that we were involved in evacuating, at least one of them actually had annually been engaged in drills that we had led for their personnel in Egypt contemplating such a, an event as what occurred during the Arab Spring. And in that particular instance, instead of doing the drill, we actually executed the plan um, for real on the ground. And it went exactly as we had trained. And um, it was really a great example of, um, of two organizations, ours and our client, coming together with a common purpose and executing on a plan that had been put in place in advance for just such an occurrence, and, and it went flawlessly. Uh, we had some other clients who were a little bit less prepared, and we had to step in and, and do more than we ordinarily would have done for those that, that do have emergency action plans in place, but we were able to successfully get everybody out of harm's way and out of the places where they want to depart from. And it's certainly an interesting time in that region, and you know we were fortunate that we were able to do everything that our clients needed us to on the ground. But I can tell you, the prepared client is a client that we certainly prefer, and it's also the client that has the highest likelihood of, of succeeding and successfully responding to these sorts of events. So the problem with, with a lot of these emergency action plans and, and crisis management plans that clients have is that they're too long, honestly. I mean, they sit in big, thick binders on somebody's shelf. As soon as they are completed, they, they tend not to be pulled off the shelf ever again, and so they become outdated rather quickly. And what we help our clients do is we either write them from scratch or we come in and help them operationalize what they've already got. And a lot of that operationalization actually has to do with slimming down the plans that they have, introducing key elements that will allow them to be successful and effective rapidly when these events occur, because often there isn't a lot of time. It's one of the most challenging parts of responding to a crisis is the compression of time. And we provide additional resources that actually allow them to execute. So you put all that together and you have something pretty powerful when crises do occur. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. Holly, it's been my pleasure. That's all for this episode of Security Management Highlights. Once again, I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell. Thanks for tuning in and be on the lookout throughout the month for more bonus material. Bye-bye.